my brother had made the previous Christmas out of an empty soup can and pieces of felt. Diana was still sitting in the shady no-man's land when I returned. Here's what we're going to do, I said, handing half the paper and a pencil to her. We're going to write letters to each other as if we're already grown up. You tell me about your life, and I'll tell you about mine. How old should we be? Diana asked, getting into the game. Oh, old enough to have everything we want, but not too old to enjoy it. You be 34 and I'll be 36, I said. I leaned back against the trunk of the tree and closed my eyes. The image of what I saw is as clear to me now as it was then. I began writing. Dear Diana, My life is perfect. My husband James and I are happily married. We met when I was an architect just out of college, the year I published my first book. James is a wonderful man, a banker, tall and handsome with curly black hair, twinkling blue eyes, and large, strong hands. We live on a horse ranch in the mountains outside Denver, Colorado, just the two of us with our twelve kids. Our children are growing so fast. Justin, the oldest, is already twelve. The twins, Elizabeth and Anastasia, are ten, John is nine, Rebecca and Christian are eight, Emily is seven, Ben is six, Julia and Molly are four, Thomas is three, and Sarah is one. As you can imagine, they keep me very busy. I have time for myself, though, too. I love to go horseback riding in the mountains, paint, write, or play tennis during the day. At night, James and I often go to fancy restaurants with our friends. Our family lives in a lovely old Victorian mansion that's painted blue with white gingerbread trim. It has a large porch that goes all the way around the house and bedrooms for each of our kids. A swing hangs from the branches of a tree in the front yard, and in the back there's a playhouse with lace curtains in the windows, barns with chickens and goats, and a rolling green horse pasture. Despite the demands of our busy household, I am able to manage everything quite effortlessly. I love my life and feel lucky to be the woman I am, the mother of twelve beautiful children and James's wife. I hope your life is wonderful, too, and that you will be coming to visit us here soon. Love, Maria. As I read my letter before handing it over to my sister, I felt warm and quiet inside. I love this woman I imagined I would become, this capable, vibrant, sexy, beautiful wife and mother. I knew that her toes were manicured, her purse well organized, and her children neatly dressed and polite. I loved her life, the wholeness and fullness, joy and satisfaction in it. I felt as if great things were possible for me, things that felt real and familiar even though there was no evidence of them in the life I was now living. I was a secret, being kept hidden until the time was right, ripening and waiting for the external world to change before I could be revealed. I imagined this woman I would become as if it were already done, as if it were already true for me. Each of us, in the most silent part of ourselves, has always known who we are. The eyes that look into ours from the image in the mirror recognize something that does not change with time or age. 
it would take me 24 more years to spiral into the center of myself, to discover and begin fully living the sense of happiness and possibility that I dreamed for myself when I was 12. And in the process, I would have to learn to be fiercely honest with myself and with others, and to unravel with integrity and discernment all my ideas about the way life is supposed to be. Part 1 10 Days, 10 Years Summer, 1998, Sunday The only light in the room came from a single kerosene lamp. I ran my hand along the wall beside the wide plank door, found a switch, and flicked it on. A copper lamp with a fringed shade made a circle of light on the small wooden table next to the bed. I stood in the center of the room and felt a sense of excitement growing in me. Although I had dreamed of this moment for years, envisioned this place many times before, I hadn't ever truly believed it would happen. The idea of a retreat had been planted in my heart in the first months after Hannah's death. Holding her lifeless body in my arms, part of me had released itself. Something in me had irreparably changed. I had known then that I would have to get away, to immerse myself in a silence that was only mine if I were to ever understand fully what had happened, if I were ever to know what I was supposed to do next. The hermitage, the center where I was now staying, had been established years ago by an elderly Mennonite couple who had converted a huge barn into several floors of small bedrooms, libraries, and a kitchen dining room. For a modest fee, guests were given their own rooms and bath and encouraged to spend their days quietly on their own, reading, painting, writing, or walking in the fields and surrounding woods. All meals except for breakfast were prepared by Mary and served to guests around the farm table in silence. It seemed the perfect space for my retreat. Now, gazing around the room, I felt as if I had been transported into another timeless place far from any life I had ever known. The walls were paneled with knotted pine boards that climbed horizontally to the beamed ceiling. Two screened windows on wide hinges were open to the warm summer evening, their white lace curtains catching the breeze. A well-worn plank floor was partially covered by a brown braid rug, and along one wall, facing the largest window, was a double bed with a carved wooden headboard and muted patchwork quilt. A small teddy bear with button eyes and suede paws leaned against the pillow. I laid my suitcase on the bed and began to unpack. I stacked my folded clothes in the drawers of the simple bureau, placed my new journal alongside a silver pen on the small desk that sat beneath the window across from the bed, and slid several photographs of my husband, Claude, and our four children, Will, ten, Hannah, who would have been seven, Margaret, three, and Madeline, two, under the edges of the window frame above. In the drawers of the desk, I put pages of drawing paper, a few pencils, and a deck of cards. Beneath the second window next to the dresser was a small kneeling bench with a wooden shelf nailed to the wall above it. 
Here I place devotive candle and the gold cross I wore around my neck during the last year of Hannah's life. When I had finished, I slid my suitcase under the bed and sat down in the large upholstered reading chair in the corner. From my vantage point, I could see fireflies blinking in the dark outside the windows. I sat quietly, not moving, feeling myself breathe. Mary, the caretaker, had told me when I checked in that one other guest was scheduled to arrive in a day or two. Other than that, I would be on my own. Having shared a room with two younger sisters until I was 18 and never having lived on my own, the idea of so much solitude and silence seemed too good to be true. Sitting in the light of the flickering lamp, I heard a rustling noise just outside the window and felt a shiver up my spine. Quickly I stood up and with a running start leaped across the floor onto the bed just as I had as a little girl, afraid of monsters that lurked in dark corners. Undressing beneath the covers, I dropped my clothes onto the floor and burrowed beneath the soft sheets and thick quilt. Closing my eyes against the dark and silence, I fell almost immediately into a deep sleep. Winter, 1988. Slip sliding away. My body was not my own. Every pore was yawning open. Even the air particles felt charged with anticipation, poised for what was about to happen. The nurse, standing on one side of the bed, was anchoring my foot in the stirrup. Claude, his eyes wild with excitement, held one of my outstretched...